From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. For years, 28-year-old Carly had been going to doctors, telling them about her painful periods, constipation, anxiety, and painful sex. Each time she was told some variation on the same thing. Take the pill, use a laxative and eat more fiber, try an anti-anxiety medication or an SSRI, relax and try more foreplay before sex. She was already embarrassed enough by her symptoms. She felt incredibly self-conscious that her bloating made her look and feel pregnant, and she didn't have the confidence to tell her partner that sex hurt. So she endured more discomfort than she felt good about herself for doing. A self-declared feminist, this was all very eroding for her self-concept. So having to repeat her symptoms for doctors who dismissed her again and again as basically an anxious and uptight millennial made her feel even more so. She had no answers and even worse, she began to wonder if she really wasn't just an anxious and uptight young woman. After all, that could cause painful sex and digestive problems, right? But still, she trawled the internet hoping to find an answer. Then, after reading one of my articles online about endometriosis, the lights went on. She saw that it could be causing constipation, pain with sex, and other symptoms that she was experiencing. And she found a gynecologist willing to go down that discovery road with her. And sure enough, she did have endometriosis, a diagnosis and story she later shared with me and with great relief. Variations of this story, and some with far worse outcomes, repeat themselves daily, even hourly, in doctors' offices and hospitals around this country. A woman is told that her mid-menstrual cycle pain is normal when in fact she has an ovarian cyst. Another, that her chronic pain is due to lack of exercise and being overweight, leading her to feel blamed and shamed, rather than just being properly diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which may have nothing to do with her weight. One is told that her fatigue is just stress until she's finally, hopefully, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Another, that her low postpartum mood is just the baby blues and it will pass when she actually has postpartum depression. And yet another is sent home from the ER mid-heart attack with an improper diagnosis of anxiety and anti-anxiety meds. You may already be shaking your head having known a woman to whom something like this has happened, or maybe something like this happened to you. If you've been made to feel by healthcare providers that your symptoms are not that bad, or are normal, or could be on your head, whether just stress, anxiety, or overwork, you're not alone. I've heard this story and witnessed it myself countless times during my years of practice. And the evidence bears this out. It can take years, even up to a decade, for a woman to get diagnosed with endometriosis, an autoimmune condition, or polycystic ovary syndrome, common conditions all affecting as many as one in eight women. 
Many never get an answer, and most have spent some amount of time assuming maybe it is just all in their heads. What's happened in all of these scenarios? In very recent years, it's become clear that one common thread is something called medical gaslighting, an increasingly used term for the well-documented phenomenon of patients, almost universally women, having their symptoms, many suggestive of very diagnosable and real medical conditions, small and big, minimized or outright dismissed by medical professionals. Medical gaslighting is not just psychologically uncomfortable to experience, though it definitely is that. It can be a matter of life and death as a result of dangerously delayed or missed diagnoses for serious conditions, including heart attack and stroke, as we'll explore. And as I've already illustrated, it can cause women to start to gaslight themselves, wondering if they are in fact convincing themselves of symptoms that aren't there, even severe pain. As one woman who joined my practice and who was eventually diagnosed by me with Hashimoto's, an autoimmune hypothyroidism condition, told me after years of her weight gain and low mood being chalked up by several doctors, none of whom ran proper blood work, to a diagnosis of depression and her poor food choices, she said, surely all of these doctors couldn't be wrong. After all, they were experts. Too often in the face of medical gaslighting, we start blaming our own bodies and ourselves. Another risk of being medically gaslighted is that we lose trust in the medical system and stop seeking medical care altogether when we do have symptoms, sometimes even major symptoms. Medical gaslighting by a previous healthcare provider is a major reason women come to see me in my medical practice. We all want to be seen, heard, believed, and properly diagnosed. And we don't want to be made to feel crazy anymore. So what is medical gaslighting? Well, prior to the advent of electric lighting, homes were lit by gas lamps. The wealthy had homes with gas sconces that could be, with the turn of a small knob, adjusted for brightness. The term gaslighting stems from a 1944 American psychological thriller film starring Ingrid Bergman. In the story, Bergman's character, a young woman who has inherited her aunt's fortune, unknowingly marries her aunt's former lover, and get this, her murderer, who is after the niece's inheritance, including a valuable piece of jewelry that he believes is hidden in their home. Early on in the story, Bergman notices strange occurrences happening in the house, strange noises in the ceiling, valuable items in the house being misplaced or disappearing altogether. And toward the term gaslighting, the gaslit sconces mysteriously dim and brighten without anyone apparently adjusting them. Her husband, whom she adores, of course, repeatedly denies that these phenomena are occurring, even when they're occurring when he's in the room claiming she's imagining things, and eventually he asserts that she's medically insane. Ultimately, a police inspector, and yes, the handsome hero, confirms her suspicions. Her husband is up to something nefarious. He also sees the gas lights changing in brightness and assures Bergman of her sanity. A chase ultimately ensues and results in her husband being detained, tied to a chair, in fact, prior to arrest. The denouement of this remarkably still relevant film is a suspenseful moment where Bergman gets hers. She taunts her soon-to-be-imprisoned and soon-to-be ex-husband with a knife while he's tied to the chair, telling him, 
Perhaps the knife is real. Perhaps it's not. Touche. The term gaslight eventually began to appear in academic settings, referring to a form of psychological manipulation in which someone seeks to undermine another person's perceptions of reality, causing that person to question the validity of their own thoughts, feelings, or memories. Apropos, and like the Bergman character in the film, gaslighting typically leads victims to feel confusion, loss of confidence and self-esteem, and uncertainty about their own mental stability. I learned the term and about the movie about 20 years ago when my very cool hypnotherapist, doula, older cousin, thank you, Jules, told me about them. And as dated as the film is, I deeply recognized the phenomena as one I'd seen happen far too many times, not only in healthcare, but in other ways in women's lives. For example, in emotionally abusive relationships. In recent years, the term gaslighting has become far more mainstream and is used more liberally than its original academic form to refer to grossly misleading someone, especially for a personal advantage. The term has become so ubiquitous that in 2022, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary chose gaslight as their word of the year. More recently, the term medical gaslighting has found its way into common parlance on social media and even in articles in places like the New York Times to describe the increasingly documented reality and shared experience of women in which doctors or other medical providers dismiss symptoms or brush women's symptoms off as psychological, not that bad, not existing at all, or if her symptoms are acknowledged, she may be told that even though she has symptoms, She's medically fine. She doesn't have a medical condition. In most cases, medical gaslighting is likely not an intentional motivation on the part of medical providers to manipulate or deceive a patient. It's more likely an unfortunately baked in part of medical training that leads to poor communication and a hierarchy in which the doctor believes he or she knows best and the patient is an unreliable reporter. This is not uncommon in our culture in general. We can all think of high-profile crime cases, for example, in which women are not believed, and women not being trusted is a common and old cultural trope. But even without ill intent, the consequences of denying the reality of someone's symptoms and experience can be damaging, even devastating. Serena Williams' now oft-cited birth experience is a stark example of this issue. In 2017, the tennis superstar gave birth to her daughter, Olympia, via an emergency C-section. Despite her clear and well-founded concerns about her health due to a history of blood clots, Williams encountered resistance from her medical team. During her postpartum period, Williams explained shortness of breath and requested a CT scan, believing she might have a pulmonary embolism consistent with her known medical condition. However, the medical staff initially dismissed her concerns. It was only after she insisted on the test that a blood clot was indeed discovered in her lung. This delay in diagnosis could have had fatal consequences. Williams' experience highlights the pervasive problem of medical gaslighting where patients, especially women and women of color, are not taken seriously when they express symptoms or concerns. The consequences can be dire, as delayed or incorrect diagnoses can lead to severe health complications and even death. It underscores the urgent need for healthcare providers to listen to their patients, prioritize their concerns, and ensure that every voice is heard in the pursuit of accurate and timely medical care. And until that's 
what's baked into the healthcare system. It requires us to be vigilant to the possibilities in our own medical encounters and to know what we can do to protect ourselves. The fact is that medical gaslighting happens primarily to women, and even more so to women with chronic conditions and symptoms that are historically attributed primarily to mental health issues, including depression, fatigue, or chronic pain. Women from specific demographics are also more likely to be gaslighted, told their symptoms are due to hidden agendas. For example, Black women are highly vulnerable to having their pain dismissed because medical providers are more likely to stereotype Black women as drug seekers. This is not a theoretical phenomenon. As a doctor working in hospital, I've had to intervene more than once when a doctor or nurse refused adequate pain medication for a Black woman in a sickle cell crisis or experiencing pain from end-stage ovarian cancer. The rebuff to me from the nurses and other doctors as I was taking over care in each case was the same. She's probably just drug-seeking. Bullshit. These women were demonstrably sick. They had known medical conditions and conditions that are known to cause severe pain. Women who are overweight are also especially likely to experience medical gaslighting. One patient of mine told me that her former doctor had said that if she just did a better job of controlling her fork-to-mouth problem, she'd lose weight. In fact, she gained weight because of severe and undiagnosed Hashimoto's. But it's not just these women. Every woman is at risk. One study found that women who had pain but who dressed up nicely for a doctor's appointment were more likely to be dismissed as not in pain because if you were in pain, clearly, you wouldn't be able to dress up like that. And then the opposite is also true. Women who dressed in sweats, for example, in that same study and didn't put on makeup or do their hair up were more likely to be considered drug-seeking because they looked slovenly and have their pain dismissed because of that. It's a lose-lose, if you ask me. So why is this happening and happening so much to women? Perhaps the most common reason is persistent, outdated gender stereotypes. Cultural norms still portray women as complaining, and medicine happens in the context of the greater culture. If women are seen as complaining, and in fact, the opening salvo of most medical charts is chief complaint, this may lead medical providers, as well as others, to underestimate women's reports of pain and other symptoms. Cultural portrayals of women as more emotionally expressive lead providers to wonder whether women are exaggerating symptoms or using symptoms as an excuse for a day off of work, for medication, or for other benefits. On the flip side, and despite all of our experience with, quote unquote, the man flu, men are considered to be more stoic. So when they express pain, they're more likely to be perceived as having real pain. And when we express pain or other symptoms, we're more likely to be seen as being dramatic. In a groundbreaking 2001 article called The Girl Who Cried Pain, researchers reported that because of these gender stereotypes, women are, quote, more likely to have their pain reports discounted as emotional or psychogenic and therefore not real, end quote. Research also suggests that all of us, men and women, tend to hold these unconscious biases. A 2021 experiment in which people watched video clips of real patients in pain found that compared with the patient's own rating of their pain, observers of both genders underestimated women's pain 
and overestimated men's pain. When men and women showed the same amount of pain in their facial expression, women were judged to be in less pain than men. The observers also thought that female patients would benefit more than male patients from psychotherapy than medication. The researchers were able to show that gender stereotypes seemed to be driving this bias. Those who thought women were more willing to report pain than men tended to underestimate women's pain the most. Another reason that women's reports of their pain and other symptoms are often dismissed as psychogenic is simply that doctors have long been taught that women are especially more prone to hysterical symptoms. In ancient Greek medicine, the disease hysteria, stemming from the Greek word for uterus, was originally believed to arise from a wandering womb, that the uterus literally lost its moorings in the pelvis, no longer was attached, and started wandering around the body, causing everything from melancholy to madness. Eventually, in the 20th century, hysteria came to be considered a mental disorder that caused physical symptoms, and the typical hysterical patient was, you guessed it, always a woman. Hysteria was an actual diagnosis that appeared in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, until the 1980s. And many common women's health conditions were blamed on women's psyches and personalities for decades before they were finally recognized as very real biomedical conditions. For example, women with migraines were described as having a migraine personality, meaning neurotic, frigid, and unable to accept their womanly responsibilities. Meanwhile, endometriosis was referred to as the career woman's disease because it was thought to affect women who were intelligent, compulsively perfectionistic, anxious, and willing to place personal achievement over having children. And those are quotes from the DSM and other medical literature. While hysteria is no longer a diagnosis in the DSM, the concept remains alive and operational, now covered by terms like somaticization, functional symptoms, and, quote, medically unexplained symptoms, end quote. The belief that women are more likely to have psychogenic symptoms persists today. Doctors far more commonly default to a diagnosis of psychological origin in women than in men. Usually, we are no longer directly told it's hysteria or all in our heads, although a Latina woman recently told me that upon hearing she was having chest pain, her doctor told her that she was a hysterical Cuban woman. Instead, women are now often told that their unexplained symptoms are depression, anxiety, or stress. And if you happen to tell your doctor you're under stress or that you've had a mental health challenge in the past, this just increases the likelihood that your doctor will again chalk your symptoms up now to being psychogenic. Women who have a mental health diagnosis in their chart, anxiety, depression, or postpartum depression, for example, which is now the case for about one in four women, are significantly more likely to have their physical symptoms written off as psychological in origin. And get this, a woman who goes from doctor to doctor trying to get answers, or even more egregious, saying to a current provider that a previous provider didn't give her answers, are even more likely to be labeled as not only a difficult patient, but to have a psychological diagnosis applied rather than her actual symptoms explored. In addition to having their symptoms psychologized, it's also common for women to have their symptoms dismissed as normal, thanks to an equally long history of normalizing women's pain and illness. 
as women, even we ourselves buy into the cultural myth far too often that suffering is an expected, inevitable part of being a woman, assuming it's just normal for us to experience hemorrhagic level periods, severe monthly cramps, or 50 soaking hot flashes a day. And doctors often reinforce this myth. They tell women who report pain with sex to just relax more or have a glass of wine first. And I'm not kidding. This is a common prescription, if you will. And they often assure women with debilitating menstrual pain from endometriosis that it's just normal period cramps and blame a wide range of women's symptoms on hormones with no further investigation. Black women and overweight women, as I mentioned, are also far more likely to be gaslighted. This is based on biases that run deep in our cultural history and in the history of medicine and which are still pervasive today. In addition to the trope of the drug-seeking Black person or Black woman, there's a widely entrenched belief that Black women are more pain-tolerant than just about anyone else. This is based on horrible myths perpetuated by slavers that justified physical and sexual abuse of enslaved Black women. And the fat shaming so ubiquitous in our culture at large is also alive and unwell in medicine, made worse by the mistaken beliefs that being overweight is the root of all disease. It is not, which I'll talk about in another episode of the podcast. But what I will state here is that studies have shown repeatedly that the majority of doctors queried in various surveys admit that they feel disgust for overweight patients and consider their weight and co-occurring medical problems the patient's fault. Women are also gaslighted more than men because of a much greater lack of knowledge about our bodies and our health conditions. Until the 1990s, women were systematically excluded from clinical research. Even now, conditions that mostly impact women continue to be understudied due to lack of funding and lack of interest in studying those conditions. We now know, for example, that women often don't experience the stereotypical symptoms of a heart attack, the chest pain that leads to the proverbial clenched fist sign over the heart and the arm pain. The symptoms are more prevalent in men. Women's heart attack symptoms may present as fatigue, nausea, jaw or shoulder discomfort. And if doctors aren't educated on these differences, they're likely to dismiss women's unexplained symptoms of a heart attack as something else. This happened to Carol. Carol had been unusually fatigued for several days when she finally came into the hospital. I happened to be working that night on the emergency department as an internal medicine resident when she came in. When I reviewed her symptoms and spoke with her and shared those with the attending physician and expressed my concern for heart attack and the need for a workup, he point blank told me that she had no chest pain and I should just send her home. I essentially begged him to let me keep her for a few hours for observation and to run some tests that could rule in or rule out a heart attack. I was so persistent in those few minutes that he finally relented and I ran a cardiac enzyme profile. Sure enough, she was in the early stages of a heart attack and received the potentially life-saving treatment she needed as a result. All the attending said to me was, nice catch. It was only because of my extracurricular studies that I knew that women's symptoms of heart attack may not be the typical ones men experience. Any other doctor may have and probably would have sent Carol home as an anxiety case. And this wasn't a one-off that I happened to witness. I saw this or a variation of this many times. But indeed, women are more likely to die of a heart attack than men because our symptoms are more likely to be missed or dismissed as psychogenic. A 2022 study found that compared to men, women who visited emergency departments with chest pain were less likely to be triaged as an emergency to undergo electrocardiography testing 
to be seen by a specialist or given medications for a heart attack or admitted to the hospital. In another experiment, women were twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with a mental health condition when they reported symptoms of heart disease. This highlights the most dangerous potential consequence of medical gaslighting, that too many women do not get properly diagnosed before and therefore treated for a serious condition. Indeed, research shows that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed than men in a variety of situations, face longer diagnostic delays for a range of conditions from cancer to autoimmune disease, and are often treated less aggressively for their pain and other symptoms. In acute, potentially fatal conditions when time is of the essence, medical gaslighting can literally kill. Here are just a few examples that illustrate this further. A 2022 study found that women and girls were more likely to have a missed appendicitis diagnosis in the emergency room. In a 2008 study of patients coming into the ER with abdominal pain, women waited 16 minutes longer on average than men, so 65 minutes versus 49 minutes to receive pain medication. The women were also less likely than men to receive any pain medication at all, especially opiates. And a 2014 study found that women were a third more likely than men to have a missed stroke diagnosis, meaning they'd come into the ER suffering a stroke and be sent home with a misdiagnosis or no diagnosis at all. For more chronic conditions, medical gaslighting can go on for years as women go from doctor to doctor seeking answers for their ongoing symptoms. Take endometriosis. While this painful condition is estimated to affect 10% of reproductive age women, in many cases it takes women over a decade to get properly diagnosed. In one survey of over 4,000 women with endo, nearly two-thirds stated that they'd been told prior to diagnosis that nothing was wrong with them. Or consider autoimmune diseases. About 80% of autoimmune patients are women. In fact, autoimmune diseases make it into the top 10 killers of women annually. Yet, according to a survey by the Autoimmune Related Diseases Association, it takes an average of four years and four doctors to get a diagnosis of a serious autoimmune disease. And many women report being labeled as chronic complainers during this diagnostic delay. And even though most autoimmune diseases affect women more than men, it often takes women with autoimmune disease longer to get diagnosed compared to their male counterparts. One study of patients with rheumatoid arthritis found that women were referred to a rheumatologist in 10 weeks compared to just three weeks for men, while another survey found that women were diagnosed with Crohn's disease in 20 months compared to 12 months for men. Beyond the physical health consequences, being medically gaslighted, especially repeatedly, can cause deep emotional harm. Having your bodily experiences invalidated by a medical professional, someone you depend on for help, can be traumatic and can sometimes even result in PTSD. A 2020 survey of lupus patients, an autoimmune disease that affects mostly women, a majority described being dismissed or disbelieved, and some described developing PTSD usually from cumulative negative medical experiences, especially misdiagnoses. Understandably, these experiences had made them distrustful of the medical system and sometimes led them to avoid seeking care for potentially life-threatening symptoms that can accompany this condition. I've seen this firsthand in my practice. Women come to me often after being gaslighted by other providers, and they are so greatly relieved to learn that they didn't imagine their mistreatment 
or their symptoms, which so often they began to worry, like Bergman in the film, that perhaps they had imagined after all. When we find the actual diagnosis, which we often do, they are doubly relieved to have an explanation for their symptoms. I knew something was wrong is something I've heard so many women say. But even when we don't find a diagnosis, as sometimes things remain mysterious, they feel validated and believed, and that in itself is a relief. The validation that she's not crazy is often the first step in her reclaiming her power and confidence. I also want to emphasize that medical gaslighting can happen to any of us. Years ago, I had my own encounter with a medical dismissal. It unfolded over several years, beginning at the age of 35, when my once stellar exercise tolerance inexplicably plummeted. Despite generally pristine health and really good physical fitness, over the course of several months after an unexplained flu-like illness that happened in midsummer, uphill exercise on my bicycle, once relatively easy and something I loved, turned into literal uphill battles for me. So did hiking up a steep grade, something I'd previously been able to do toting a toddler in a backpack. My heart would pound in my chest, feeling like it was going to explode. Nausea and dry heaving would overtake me, and my pulse would thunder in my ears. I would teeter on the brink of passing out, so much so that I would have to stop, bend over, kind of put my head down, and just rest and let the symptoms subside for several minutes before continuing. And sometimes I just couldn't continue up that hill. It was uncomfortable, embarrassing at times if I was out with others, and discouraging because I loved to do these things and it felt really limiting. With no answers forthcoming other than stress, which it was not, I learned to work around the symptoms by avoiding strenuous uphill exercise or to pace myself really slowly when I did attempt it. Then, during my medical training a couple of years later, a series of life and death codes unfolded before my eyes. Picture Grey's Anatomy-esque scenes. Code blue, code blue, blaring on the hospital PA system with doctors rushing to resuscitate dying patients. And I was one of those doctors. On these occasions, which are incredibly adrenaline-filled, I often had to sprint up three, four, five, or six flights of stairs or race the length of the hospital's city block stretch to reach the patient's bedside. On two such sequential occasions over the course of a few days, I was on the verge of collapse before I got there. And on the third, I nearly fainted outright, prompting a rapid response of me at the hospital. I basically became the code on the way to the code. Not fun when you're a medical resident. In fact, horrifyingly embarrassing. In the emergency department, where I was told to go just after that third event, just to be cautious, after rest, water, and orange juice plied into me, revived me, a charismatic and okay, I'm just going to admit it, really hot dad cardiologist, as in he had four kids and some major swag, seemingly straight out of a rom-com, diagnosed me as being overheated, dehydrated, and overworked, pointing fingers at my demanding life as a mom and a medical resident. No, I protested. I never had these symptoms before the past couple of years, and it's very situationally specific. Something isn't right. Undeterred, he dismissed my concerns. I have four kids too, Dr. Rom, so I know what pressures you're under, he said, in an attempt at a soothing voice. And it almost worked. But trusting my instincts and my experience and not liking having basically just crumped on a medical rotation, I sought a second opinion. One of my medical professors, also a cardiologist, who upon hearing my story was clearly amused and agreed to see me. 
It was only after a near collapse in his office on a treadmill during an exercise stress test and after reviewing my echocardiogram results that he returned to the room actually chuckling. On a first name basis with our professors at my alma mater, Yale, I asked him what he thought was so funny. His response, I thought you were just another hypochondriac medical student having whatever symptoms you hear about on your rotation. But Aviva, I was wrong. It turns out you have a very real electrical conduction issue in your heart. I'm not sure why. And if you want to play Wimbledon, he said, you can get a pacemaker or you can just adapt to it. Since I don't play tennis with any seriousness or skill, I figured I didn't need to worry about Wimbledon or the Tour de France. I've lived relatively comfortably with my personal odd electrical cardiac variation for many years now. I take it slow and steady and I finish the race. The cause of this electrical conduction abnormality? We're still not 100% sure, but lab tests that I had later suggested that the flu-like illness may have been Lyme disease. The reality here is that I'm a generally confident woman with a lot of experience public speaking, access to medical care, and an MD after my name. And that does help me communicate confidently and strongly in such situations. As I talk about in my podcast and article, how being a good girl can be hazardous to your health, I also learned early how to advocate for myself. And I've seen far too many situations where lack of advocacy for someone in healthcare didn't end well. My decades of experience as a midwife in the state in which midwifery was illegal and had the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the U.S. definitely fueled my fire as a fearless advocate for anyone experiencing healthcare injustice, including myself. But just being a doctor doesn't necessarily protect one from medical gaslighting. We only have to look at the stories of Susan Moore and Dr. Angela Marshall, author of Dismissed, Tackling the Biases that Undermine Our Healthcare, who I interviewed on my podcast, who was dismissed by another doctor over what turned out to be very accurate and significant concerns over her infant son's health. And she tells that story in the episode. And Susan Moore was a 52-year-old Black female physician whose severe breathing problems when she was being treated for COVID, along with severe neck pain, were being dismissed. She reported this dismissal in a poignant Facebook video, which was then later shared in the Washington Post and stated that I was crushed. He made me feel like a drug addict, and he knew I was a physician. I don't take narcotics. Susan Moore, MD, died of untreated COVID complications shortly after. And Serena Williams did play Wimbledon and won seven times. And that didn't stop her medical team from dismissing her. It just gave her the confidence to speak up. And that's what I want to instill in you today. As I've shown you, medical gaslighting is a deeply embedded and deeply concerning phenomenon connected to sexism, racism, outdated beliefs in medicine, and also affects others, overweight people, non-binary folks, older people, and those with physical and cognitive disabilities or mental health challenges, and more so when any of those folks are women. It can erode trust in the patient-provider relationship and hinder accurate diagnoses and treatment. It leaves individuals feeling unheard, doubted, and even questioning their own health experiences and mental competence. So recognizing the signs of medical gaslighting, whether it's happening to you, someone you love, or your medical provider witnessing or hearing about it is the first step toward ensuring that it doesn't interfere with proper medical attention and care. Here are the top seven signs that could indicate that medical gaslighting, dismissal, or disrespect is happening. Your symptoms are dismissed, so healthcare professionals 
are dismissing your symptoms or failing to take your concerns seriously. And they're expressing that either in words or by brushing you off, not giving you the tests or the information you need, not setting up follow-up to go deeper into what's going on with you. Lack of listening. Your healthcare providers are actively not listening to you in your appointment or frequently interrupting your attempts to explain your condition. They're belittling your concerns by doing something like eye rolling or making facial expressions that make you feel belittled or actually scoffing or laughing at your concerns or suggesting that your symptoms are psychological, implying in some way that it's all in your head. They're showing a lack of empathy or sensitivity toward your pain, your worries, or in some way are making you feel unheard, invalidated, or embarrassed. You're being blamed for your medical condition, whether it's your weight, some aspect of your background, something that you may or may not be doing, rather than conducting a thorough investigation into its possible causes. And finally, your medical symptoms or condition is being attributed to a mental health condition without considering other possibilities. So let's talk about what you can do if you spot any of these happening in a medical care experience. First and foremost, trust yourself and your instincts. That's perhaps the hardest because not only is gaslighting baked into the practice of medicine as it exists today in the U.S., so is distrusting ourselves which is exactly what gaslighting perpetuates. So you get the problem here? Again, trust your instincts and how you feel. Believe me, I know it can be hard to speak up, especially to doctors or people we perceive as authority figures. And as women, we're socialized to be good girls. We don't want to be perceived as difficult, complaining, or unappreciative. And we know that that can perpetuate the problem. So for more on overcoming good girl conditioning, please check out my article or my podcast, Being a Good Girl Can Be Hazardous to Your Health. If you're scared of conflict, create an alter ego for yourself who's not afraid of conflict and channel her. I talk about how Beyonce used to do that with Sasha Fierce, and I share more about this in my article and podcast, How to Talk to Your Doctor and Get the Healthcare You Need. You can find all of these wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can go to my website, avivaram.com, and search for those and bookmark them so that if you ever do have to have a medical encounter, you can download those or have a look and refresh yourself. If conflict feels unsafe or unwise in a given situation, and this is very real and legitimate because of who you are and how a provider might be biased against you. For example, you are a woman of color and you are advocating for yourself or your child in a setting that starts to raise tensions. You could have social services get called on you. And that is something that happens and is definitely something that happens in biased settings where racism is causing providers to make assumptions. And I talk about this with Kimberly Seals Allers, when she had to take her child to the doctor, even as a woman who was a reporter with a graduate degree from Columbia in journalism, when she would have to take one of her children to the doctor or she had to take one of her children to the emergency department, she would dress up and look professional for the occasion because she was so concerned about tropes that might 
be placed on her that might impact the care that her child was getting or how she was treated if she had to advocate for herself. So in those situations, it is important to read the room. You shouldn't have to. This should never be happening. But still, the reality is you might have to. Stay cool. Don't jeopardize yourself. And call in other advocates and witnesses that you trust, even if you have to ring somebody up on a cell phone. There is power and safety in doing this and documenting what's happening. And you have every right to do so. I hope that never happens to you. But I want to make sure that I am addressing the realities of the setting that you might walk into, and particularly if you have to advocate for yourself more fiercely. It's really important for all of us to believe in our bodies. If you think something is up with your health, speak up about your symptoms. If you're experiencing subjective symptoms, things like pain and fatigue, that others can't see and measure, try to communicate these as concretely as possible to the provider, describing how they're impacting your ability to function in your daily life, keeping a journal or a log of when the symptoms are occurring and what severity and what's happening. Be as specific as possible about how this is impacting your life. If your doctor is suggesting your symptoms are normal, emphasize that you know your own body and that they're not normal for you. Describe when they began and, if applicable, how they're changing or getting worse over time. And don't let your symptoms be dismissed. During COVID, I started a support group for pregnant mamas, which is actually, I'm so excited to share, finally going to be launching as the Mama Pathway in January of 2024 with some exciting things happening between very soon and then. In the support group, there was a mama. She was a Black mama, an entrepreneur living in Atlanta, Georgia, who listened to what I had to say about women having higher risk of preeclampsia and being dismissed, particularly as black women, and how this is also a risk in the postpartum. And it's really important, particularly for women at risk to have a blood pressure cough at home. Not being a person who typically gets headaches shortly postpartum, when she was back at home, she got the headache from hell and took her blood pressure and found it to be something like 180 over 120. She called her doctor's office and went in for an appointment. And the nurse took her blood pressure and told her it was fine at something like 130 over 90. And the woman said, well, it might be fine, but it wasn't 45 minutes ago. Please check it again. And that personnel in the office said, no, I just checked it. It's fine. To which she said, please get the doctor and have the doctor check it. And she really insisted. The doctor came in and in fact, her blood pressure had been checked inaccurately and it was still 190 over 120. She was sent to the hospital and of note, she was actually sent to drive there herself, which is insane because she could have had a seizure and was admitted and found to actually have preeclampsia. So advocating for herself, which I'm proud to say she learned to do in that support group, she later shared with me in her story, which is also recorded as a podcast, saved her life. So don't hesitate to advocate for yourself, even if you have to be the loud one, even if you're labeled as difficult in the moment. It's important to trust your symptoms if they're happening and to make sure that they are taken seriously. Another thing you could do to make sure that you're not medically dismissed or gaslighted is to make specific concerns the focus of a medical visit. So most medical visits are only about 18 minutes long. 
And if you try to squeeze your concerns into an appointment that's also slated for a full physical or a pap, it's really likely that your care providers, who is already probably seeing 25 or 30 patients in a day, is going to feel harried and rushed and is not going to make time to listen to your concerns. And this is another reason that women get their concerns dismissed. So when you call the office to make an appointment, let them know you need a full appointment that's usually 40 or 50 minutes, depending on the practice, not just a 15 or 25 minute quick visit, and that you have very specific concerns that you want to discuss at that appointment. When you do go to medical encounters, be prepared to describe your main concerns clearly and concisely. Studies have found that doctors tend to interrupt patients after roughly 20 seconds of listening to them. So before you go in, think through what your main symptoms are, what you like help with, what tests or evaluations you're seeking, and why. Write down your key points and use this as a script when you go in for your appointment. This will help you keep focused and calm, as well as also make you look prepared and organized. And as I've shared, unfortunately, these kinds of appearances and presentations are part of what get us judged. Manage the room by letting your healthcare provider know at the start of the encounter that you do believe that he or she has your best interests in mind too, and that you do respect his or her judgment and credentials and training. Managing egos should not be part of the job, but it can help. Then also let your care provider know that you're learning to and wanting to become the CEO of your own health, and a more active partner in your own health care. And you really welcome their partnership and advice. Clearly state that you'd love to have a doctor or care provider that sees you this way and who also enjoys working collaboratively. Bring a friend or relative with you to any medical encounters. Your advocate can take notes, help you stay on track with your script, and be there for moral support if needed. They can also corroborate your reports of your symptoms to the care provider. Many women report having a male advocate can be especially useful in getting providers to take their symptoms more seriously, which is totally sad. But I've also seen situations where a woman brings her boyfriend and the doctor is a male and the boyfriend and the doctor get all kind of bro with each other. So make sure you have somebody you can really trust. Another important part of having an advocate who you trust is that if you do experience gaslighting, which is frankly much less likely to happen if there's a witness in the room, you also have somebody you can talk about it with after who can hopefully corroborate, yeah, that definitely just happened. If you feel pressured to accept treatments or recommendations that you believe are insufficient or inadequate for your condition, or your refused tests for your symptoms without an explanation that you feel confident in, seek a second opinion so that you do receive an accurate diagnosis in a timely way. You can even do that in a hospital. You can even ask for that in an emergency department. You shouldn't have to live with uncertainty when answers are often available. And even when an answer isn't immediately available, you should still feel seen, heard, believed, and supported on your quest. If your provider is consistently not listening to you, dismissing you, or is gaslighting you, find another doctor. You deserve to be respected. And if your healthcare provider is insensitive, condescending, won't listen, makes you feel small, invisible, unheard, or insecure, or if you in any way have to fight for what you need, that's just not good medicine. 
For more tips on speaking up and communicating with your doctors, you can check out my podcasts, How to Talk to Your Doctor and Get the Healthcare You Need, and How to Protect Yourself Against Medical Gender Bias. I also talk more about the insidious ways that gender bias affects women's medical care in my podcast, Eight Medical Myths Keeping Women from Getting Proper Diagnosis and Treatment, and in my interview with author Maya Dusenberry, Trust Us When We Say We're Sick, author of Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. I talk more about medical racism, gaslighting, and Black women's pain in Do You Have a Migraine Personality? with Joanna Kemper, PhD, the author of Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health. Before we part for today, I want to emphasize something important. The burden shouldn't be on individual women to overcome medical gaslighting. We need systemic changes within medicine, and we need them ASAP. Here are just a few examples of what needs to shift to end the problem of medical gaslighting and medical gender bias, medical racism, fat shaming, and all the other things I've talked about. We need to invest more in research on women's health. Part of the reason women are more likely to be misdiagnosed and gaslighted is that medicine just knows less about our bodies and our conditions. Healthcare providers need to be given more time with their patients. Over half of doctors report they spend just an average of 16 minutes or less with each patient, while nearly three quarters spend more than 10 hours a week on paperwork. Research shows that when doctors are overworked and time crunched, they're more likely to make biased decisions and errors. And we need more training in medical school on unconscious biases so that doctors are aware of the ways sexism, racism, classism, ageism, fat phobia, homophobia, transphobia, and other phobias and biases can impact the way they treat patients. And they really, really do. In the meanwhile and always, it's vital to remember that you are your own best advocate when it comes to your health. Trust your instincts and seek a second or third opinion if you suspect medical gaslighting or you suspect that you have a condition that's not being diagnosed or even recognized and accepted as real. Every individual's health journey is unique and your voice matters. By being aware of the signs of gaslighting, you can navigate the healthcare system with greater confidence, ensuring that your concerns are taken seriously and your health is prioritized. Respect, listening, care. These are basic rights, and we should all collectively and individually expect and demand them for ourselves and for those in our care. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.